My name is Dr. Mark McCullough. I will be reading Canto 11 of Dante's Inferno, translated by Mark Musa. And in a departure from uh, the tradition of Cantos 1 through 10, I will read the um, introductory summary uh, Musa provides as well. Continuing their way within the sixth circle, where the heretics are punished, the poets are assailed by a stench rising from the abyss ahead of them, which is so strong that they must stop in order to accustom themselves to the odor. They pause beside a tomb whose inscription declares that within is Pope Anastasius. When the pilgrim expresses his desire to pass the time of waiting profitably, Virgil proceeds to instruct him about the plan of punishments in hell. Then, seeing that dawn is only two hours away, he urges the pilgrim on. We reached the curving brink of a steep bank constructed of enormous broken rocks. Below us was a crueler den of pain. And the disgusting overflow of stench the deep abyss was vomiting forced us back from the edge. Crouched underneath the lid of some great tomb, I saw it was inscribed, Within lies Anastasius, the Pope, Photinus lured away from the straight path. Our descent will have to be delayed somewhat, so that our sense of smell may grow accustomed to these vile fumes. Then we will not mind them, my master said, and I. You will have to find some way to keep our time from being wasted. That is precisely what I have in mind, he said, and then began the lesson. My son, within these boulders' bounds are three more circles, concentrically arranged like those above, all tightly packed with the souls, and so that later the sight of them alone will be enough. I'll tell you how and why they are imprisoned. All malice has injustice as its end, an end achieved by violence or by fraud, while both are sins that earn the hate of heaven. Since fraud belongs exclusively to man, God hates it more, and therefore far below the fraudulent are placed and suffer most. In the first of the circles below are all the violent, since violence can be used against three persons, into three concentric circles. It is divided. Violence can be done to God, to self, or to one's neighbor, to him or to his goods, as my reasoned explanation will make clear. By violent means, a man can kill his neighbor or wound him grievously. His goods may suffer violence by arson, theft, and devastation. So homicides and those who strike with malice, those who destroy and plunder, are all punished in the first round, but all in different groups. Man can raise violent hands against himself and his own goods. So, in the second round, paying the debts that never can be paid are suicides, self-robbers of your world, or those who gamble all their wealth away and weep up there when they should have rejoiced. One can use violence against the deity by heartfelt disbelief and cursing him, or by despising nature and God's bounty. Therefore, the smallest round stamps with its seal both Sodom and Cahors and all those souls who hate God in their hearts and curse his name. Fraud that gnaws the conscience of its servants can be used on one who puts his trust in you or else on one who, had, who has no trust invested. This latter sort seems only to destroy the bond of love that nature gives to man. So in the second circle there are nests of hypocrites, flatterers, 
dabblers in sorcery, falsifiers, thieves, and simonists, panders, seducers, grafters, and like filth. The, formal, the former kind of fraud both disregards the love nature enjoys and that extra bond between men which creates a special trust. Thus, it is in the smallest of the circles, at the earth's center, around the throne of Dis, that traitors suffer their eternal pain. And I, Master, your reasoning runs smooth, and your explanation certainly makes clear the nature of this pit and of its inmates. But what are those in the slimy swamp, those driven by the wind, those beat by rain, and those who come to blows with harsh refrains? Why are they too not punished here inside the city of flame, if they have earned God's wrath? If they have not, why are they suffering? And he to me, Why do you let your thoughts stray from the path they are accustomed to? Or have I missed the point you had in mind? Have you forgotten how ethics reads, those terms it explicates in such detail, the three conditions that the heavens hate, incontinence, malice, and bestiality? Do you not remember how incontinence offends God least, and merits the least blame? If you will reconsider well this doctrine, and then recall to mind who those souls were suffering pain above outside the walls, you will clearly see why they are separated from these malicious ones, and why God's vengeance beats down upon their souls less heavily. O sun that shines to clear a misty vision, such joy is mine when you resolve my doubts that doubting please me no less than knowing. Go back a little bit more, once more, I said, to where you say that usury offends God's goodness and untie that knot for me. Philosophy, he said, and more than once points out to one who reads with understanding how nature takes her course from the divine intellect, from its artistic workmanship. And if you have your physics well in mind, you will find not many pages from the start how your art too, as best it can, imitates nature the way an apprentice does his master. So your art may be said to be God's grandchild. From art and nature man was meant to take his daily bread to live, if you recall the book of Genesis near the beginning. But the usurer, adopting other means, scorns nature in herself, and in her pupil, art, he invests his hope in something else. Now follow me, we should be getting on. The fish are shimmering over the horizon, the wane is now exactly over Carcass, and the passage down the bank is farther on. So taking a look at Canto 11, I thought to myself, well, you, you might be able to combine two cantos together and uh, have one, uh, you know, one discussion about two cantos. This would, this would have been the perfect canto to have chosen, considering there is almost no action and uh, it's descriptive of the structure of hell. And then you start reading, and you realize, oh my goodness, there's so much here. I'll start with the stench and the smell. The smell of hell is, um, is actually a big part of the description of hell by um, Dante's, uh, the, the kind of the forerunners of descriptions of hell. There's one... Uh, and I'll just give you an example of how uh, smell is considered to be uh, an important aspect to punishment um, from Tundale's uh, description of hell. Now, Tundale was a 
he was an Irish monk. And I don't. And in this book, I'm looking at it. Just as the Penguin Classic of the of Hell, they say he was anonymous. So I don't. Oh, I, I understand. So he was from Tundale, and um, and he, but he was an anonymous Irish monk. No, that's not true. He was. He was in uh, Germany. In, he was an Irish monk, though. That's interesting. Well, maybe he had uh, a lot of stink on his mind because. Um, because he describes in his description of hell, which probably Dante was not aware of, of the stench. He says, The stench of this place exceeded all the tribulation that the soul had suffered up to this point. Um, in the various translations at the beginning of Canto 11, you've got some really interesting takes on the vile fumes, the vile smell, the vile stench. Um, and the, the smell is so bad that the two have to have to stop um and as they stop virgil is able to give dante this sort of discourse on the remaining structure of the lower parts of hell so uh, um so stench is a it just seems like a well it's like one of the senses to smell something that's so overpoweringly bad but it has a pretty long tradition before dante and i think of uh i think of joyce as well in, and Joyce's portrait of an artist as a young man, and the third part, he has a, an entire sermon written by a Jesuit priest who is giving the boys um, that, that Joyce's Stefan is part of. Uh, this is a retreat. It's a spiritual retreat, and the Jesuit priest is trying to scare the boys from hell. And the description of smell is wonderful. I just have to read some of it. He, he says, this is a part three of Portrait of the Arts of a Young Man by James Joyce. He says, the horror of this straight and dark prison is increased by its awful stench. All the filth of the world, all the awful and scum of the world, we are told, shall run there as to a vast reeking sewer when the terrible conflagration of the last day has purged the world. The brimstone, too, which burns there is in such prodigious quantities, fills all hell with an intolerable stench. And the bodies of the damned themselves exhale such a pestilential odor that St. Bonaventure says one of them alone would suffice to infect the whole world. The very air of this world becomes foul and unbreathable when it has been long enclosed. Consider then what must be the foulness of the air of hell. This is brilliant. Imagine some foul and putrid corpse that has laid rotting and decomposing in the grave a jelly-like mass of liquid corruption. Imagine such a corpse a prey to flames, devoured by the fire of burning brimstone, and giving off dense, choking fumes of nauseous, loathsome decomposition. And then imagine this sickening stench multiplied a millionfold and a millionfold again from the millions upon millions of fetid carcasses, massed together in the reeking darkness, a huge and rotting human fungus. Imagine all this, and you will have some idea of the horror of the stench of hell. Um, so I just love that section. We'll talk more about Joyce in, in future lectures because Joyce took so much from Dante. So why am I making such a big deal of stench? I don't I don't know. I mean, it's it's one of the reasons why they stay. It's a plot point. But it's also, as a reader, something I often forget as a contemporary reader when our world is kind of, the stenches of our world are sort of removed by, you know, Febreze and so forth. But Dante keeps with not just the tradition before him of describing hell as 
full of rotting corpses, but also, uh, you know, the smell of, of, of brimstone, but also anticipates writers like Joyce. So the vile stench here uh, affects the Virgil and Dante so, so much that they need to sit and get uh, accustomed to it, get accustomed to the smell. And that's exactly what we all do when uh, there's a very bad smell uh, that we need to, you know, <laughs> we, we need to, uh, to endure. Uh, we sort of sit down and we, and we, and we take it uh, and we um, adjust to it. So that's what they do here. So you'd think that Canto 11, where they just sit and sort of, ex it's just a form of exposition or anticipatory structure. You'd think that it would be um, boring, but it's not. It's actually quite interesting. And this is um, this is why I like Dante so much, and I think others do as well, because it's both a mix of action and of thought, um, like a book, like a novel, like Moby Dick, where you've got chapters where you've got description and action, uh, but then you have uh, these sort of contemplative passages, um, these meditative philosophical passages about everything from blubber all the way down, all the way up, I suppose, to the angels. So here they stop. Um, and the various translations that I've taken a look at here, Muse, as I read from, of course, describes um, describes the smell as, a, as vile fumes, um, Hollander as vile stench, and um, vile seems to be the, the word here. Um, and then... Uh, Dorothy Sayers uh, describes it as a vile. Our, our senses may grow used to this vile scent, and after that it will not trouble us. Um, Canto 11 also starts with a mistake, a historical mistake that was probably tradition. Of Anastasius, Pope Anastasius, um, who he calls a heretic, and according to the notes of several commentators, this is a mistake that Dante makes, probably passed down to him through um, some historians, um, uh, he's confused the Pope, I think, with an emperor, Anastasius I. He confuses that emperor with, with the Pope. It's quite unfortunate, of course, because, you know, Dante's, uh, Dante's poem lasts much longer than some of this history, and so he's already condemned some religious figures, and he will continue to do so. But this is a mistake. Um, this uh, this lid of this great tomb. It's, there's no heretical evidence of um, Anastasius II. And uh, actually Sayers writes that Dante probably got his influence from uh, the Liber Pontificalis. I don't know uh, who, who, who wrote the book of, of popes there, but Anyway, that, that source in Dante's time was, was clearly hostile to, to this book. Okay, so if we move from that, from the stench, to, from the mistake to the stench, to the organization, it's the organization of, the, um, of lower hell, which is the most interesting, I think, in, in, the, in the 11th canto. And it describes uh, the rest of, of hell. And... Um, the question becomes, well, where did Dante, um, where did Dante find this structure? Did he just make it up piecemeal? And 
as is the answer almost always with ancient and medieval work, is that no, he didn't make it up piecemeal, but he does emphasize some qualities of um, of the damned, of, of sins, of injustice that are, if not unique to him, at least um, very, very interesting for our purposes as we look through his Dante's own pers- um, judgments on on the um, on the sinners. And one thing I would just say is that um, is that lying or fraud is considered by Dante to be more serious than violence. Even though he makes the point here and elsewhere that they they often bleed into one another, fraud and malice often bleed into one another. But unlike many of the sources that he was drawing upon, Dante highlights deception as worse than violence. And there's there's a lot to say about that. I think Dante as a poet, Dante as someone who is someone who is is using language and um, also uh, focuses his comments upon himself very often as as someone who is telling the truth as this giving you a story that actually happened according to, to him and so lying um, fraud would be would be very serious we see this in Francesca and we will see this with several characters from here on out where fraud is considered to be one of the great damnable sins so of course malice lies at the heart avarice lies at the heart of both fraud and and violence and uh, and Dante is going to emphasize um, fraud and deceit over violence he's going to place the violent first uh, before um, to before they get to the simple and complex forms of of, of, of fraud so malice unlike uh, so malice is the re- is the sort of description of all of the damned in the the remaining circles here, Cantos 11 through to the end of 34. And um, and those in the upper air, those, I'm sorry, those in the upper hell are th- those who are affected by incontinence or the the um, the perversion of the will. Here the will is, I mean, we might say it's, it's intentional. Um, it's avaristic. It's malicious. It's not, certainly not out of ignorance, but it has, has maliciousness to it. And the three forms of, of, of violence that, that, that Virgil breaks down for us here are three forms of violence against God, against self, and against others. And uh, just reading again from that section, one can use violence against the deity. Um, he can, man can raise violent hands against himself. We, we'll see that in the Wood of Suicide. And um, he can also... Uh, use that against others. He can kill his neighbor, wound him grievously. Um, it's interesting too. In line thirty-five, he also adds. Virgil adds, "His goods may suffer violence by arson, theft, and devastation. So homicides and those who strike with malice, those who destroy and plunder, are all punished in the first round, but all in different groups. And so those are the groups he mentions. Those those three forms of violence. He's also going to put the sodomites to the homosexuals here as well, as violence against nature, against self." And I will, and I will note here uh, an ant- anticipatory change that Dante will make between here, where homosexuality is punished by, well, we'll see it, but it, it's it's a form of violence for Dante. He will change his Dante will apparently change his mind, um, 
and, and no one can change my mind about this, but Dante apparently changes his mind about homosexuality because by the time we get to the purgatory, he's placed the, he's, he's placed homosexuality, um, at, at the, at the highest point on the Mount before entering into the earthly paradise. I don't mean homosexually proper. I mean, homosexuality as a form of lust. Um, which makes no distinction about the natural or unnatural inclina inclinations or acts of the homosexual, but rather places that that sinner within the same context as um, as those who were who who were lustful in any in any sexual context, and uh, that's where all the poets are. But anyway, that's that's for another day. Um, but there are the violent. And then he, 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 Dante moves on to uh, describing through Virgil uh, all the um, all the all the fraudulent, right? And has that long list of hypocrites and flatterers, etc., and like filth. And so, um, and so, it's very it's very Pauline. It's very much like Saint Paul in some of his letters, you know, rattling off the various. The, the various uh, fraudulent individuals who are enemies of Christianity. Um, and Virgil here does something like the same. Now this, these descriptions of, uh, of the hypocrites is pretty imprecise for even for Dante um, and doesn't necessarily deeply correspond to what we see later on, but generally speaking, it, it does. And we can understand why, um, why these, uh, why these may be, why these sinners, why these damned may be punished outside the the walls of dis. And he asks this question to Virgil, who upbraids him. Um, I think he, I think I think Virgil gets upset at Dante. <laughs> he gets gets upset at Dante a lot. It's funny that he does. Um, and and by the way, Dante seems a little bit like. Uh, I don't know, a little like um, like he's up to no good in this canto. He, of course, he he almost jokes with Virgil. Well, I guess we can't go on. Let time for a lecture, and they sit down. Um, and here again, uh, there's there's a moment in 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 line seventy seventy five where he says, "Well, why aren't they within the walls? Why are these uh, kinds of fraud uh, within the walls? Why are they outside the walls? Are they is it special or is it that they didn't even deserve God's?" God's wrath. And of course, this is, you know, this is part, he's missing the point. Everyone he sees is worthy of God's wrath. And Virgil upbraids him and says, why do you let your thoughts stray from the path they are accustomed to? Or have I missed the point you had in mind? So um, did you really mean to ask that question? <laughs> or do I misunderstand you? Come again. Haven't you read ethics? Haven't you read your Nicomachean ethics? which is the reference here to Aristotle about the three conditions that heaven hates. Um, and this is a, this is one of these moments where the, the, um, the sort of uh, the Greek and Roman thought are, are being connected to, to early Christian and medieval Christian thought. Um, the three conditions that heaven hates as, as articulated in Aristotle, incontinence, malice, and bestiality and how incontinence offends God le least. And so if, if that's the case, then uh, then the rest of these, uh, the, the, the rest of hell will contain those who are most separated 
through God's vengeance. Um, he even says this, Virgil even says this in line 88, you will clearly see why they are separated from these malicious ones and why God's vengeance beats down upon these souls less heavily. So Dante divides uh, the malice, the malicious ones through violence and fraud, and he also makes a distinction between simple and complex fraud um, later later on. Um, but this passage, um, you know, sets out a theory or a, or a sort of framework for the rest of hell, but it, it, it's for those of us who are um, attempting to draw to, to draw a, a, a line of connection between Dante's, drama and his use of sources it gets gets very complicated um and maybe i'm making it more complicated than it needs to be for the for the uh, common reader but um i think you'll see that dante follows pretty closely the seven capital sins or the seven deadly sins tradition that it was found in saint thomas aquinas until now and he seems to uh, he, he seems to give up that structure for something bigger, um, and and in doing so, he he is able to uh, dramatize intention, almost psychological categories of how um, your intention it, it plays it plays a role in uh, in where you are in in damnation. Uh, this this would seem to be pretty um, pretty part of the course for modern or contemporary readers, but it is it is quite a quite a departure from any description of hell prior to Dante. There's, there's nothing, there's really nothing like it. I, I, I dare you to show me something like it where um, a vision of hell is um, colored by the intentions of the damned. Intentions almost don't play a role in, um, in, in, in the judging of the various characters. So Dante is throwing that in there, but by doing so, He's getting bigger, but he's getting also a little complicated. So backtrack a little bit. Um, Dante is using uh, a, a bunch of sources here uh, in, in order to make the kind of mosaic for the rest of hell. He's using Aristotelian biblical sources. He's using Ciceronian and Roman legal traditions. Um, he's using even patristic sources as well and scholastic sources. But the emphasis on on lying and deceit is his emphasis as a poet, and I think it part of part of the the lesson of of his um, of his journey through hell, um, and also um, and also I forgot I forgot my other point. Oh yes, in all of this, in, in all of these different different sources, this bric-a-brac sources, he's making an attempt to discuss kind of a psychological trope. Um, of intention, of intentionality, and why that leads you to be one place or another. So, we're not going to quite get there in violence. Uh, we'll we'll be we'll be looking at cantos um, of violence against self and God and others, and then we'll move towards malice uh, as expressed in um, in fraud, and we'll be able to ask. Uh, we'll be able to look back on Canto Eleven and say, well. How does this fit into what um, Virgil tells Dante in the ending lines here, where he says, "From art and nature, a man was meant to take his daily bread to live." If you recall the book of Genesis near the end, the beginning, 
but the user or adopting other means scorns nature in herself and her pupil art. He invests his hope in something else. So this is the second question that Virgil takes up from Dante besides the question of why are they outside the wall? And this is about usury. Um, but in this, this, this ending discussion of usury, it talks about what has been given. Um, it's the scorning of nature in herself and her pupil art and investing his hope in something else. So there's, it's, it's built, it's a form of, here it's a form of violence against, against what has been given, but it's also a, a form of, of defrauding others. Um, and, um, and again, Dante is attempting to, to, to kind of theorize through Virgil here um, why it is that some will end up in different parts of hell and why some sins are more, uh, are more um, you know, malicious, to use his word, malicious than others. Um, and he uh, articulates that through the sin of usury, um, which we'll see more of, uh, more of later. So, tapestry of philosophy, the patristics, um, even jokes, um, and we started with bad smells. So we've gone from bad smells all the way to this rather convoluted structure, and I'll be uh, looking forward to, to hearing what you have to say about about this, about the structure and how it 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 uh it, it may very well, in fact, um, depart from Dante's uh, Dante's structure from the first canto to 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 this one.